Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, If you have a Bible or an app that you use, turn to Acts 8. The book of Acts, we're going to be in chapter 8 as we continue this series. This is going to be a great passage. If you've been here for more than a month, you've heard me say the same thing I say every week. I say this every single time I preach. Because we're a text-driven church, I always say, turn to a certain place in your Bible. This is going to be the passage that shows us Jesus more clearly. Some of you could almost finish the sentence. I mean that every week. I especially mean it this week. This week, it's a great text to show us Jesus more clearly and is an example of how to read passages of the Bible and start to see it yourself. We're going to do a little bit of an exercise today up on the screen. So good, easy passage for us today. Acts 8. Um, I've taught, th- this was a joke for a while. and Some of you know this, but twice in the last 15 months or so, my family has been approached by two different production companies to do a reality show in our own house. Um, we turned both of them down for obvious reasons. Um, it's not really the real world because of editing and because of all kinds of stuff and things that you have to sign away. There's no way we would ever be depicted like we would want to be depicted. So we turned them down. Um, the truth is, is, as much as reality TV is dominating the landscape, no one in here really believes that that's real, right? We all know it's not really real. We watch it, and it's interesting, but it is a bit of an escape. I remember back in 1992, I remember this, when the genesis of all that we know as reality TV programming came out, and it was MTV. They released it, The Real World. Does anyone in here remember that? 1992, The Real World. They just wrapped on their 30th season. Right? They are still going strong. Some of you are like, are they still doing that? They're still doing it because there's 16 people out there watching it. You know? And I remember when it first came out, how just enamored I was with it. This is real. It's amazing. And they always found like 16 or 17 uber cool 20-somethings, and they would cram them in some nice loft in some cool city. And of course, it would be a wide spectrum of individuals, and they'd let the cameras roll. And I was just amazed at how gritty and deep it was, right? How interesting it was. But there was really no mistaking. It's not real. I never finished an episode and thought, well, that's the real world, man. Why? Because there's a camera in the room. The lens is there, a little red light telling you that you're alive. Nothing's real, right? And when we watch stuff like that, and it's fun and it's interesting, but we know that their drama is not really connected with our drama. Their, their real world is not really our real world. We, we know that, right? Not to be overdramatic and not to be provocative, but if I'm being honest with you, I'd say that sometimes I feel like this book of stories and God's overall story is not really the real world. I'm just being honest. Sometimes it feels like it's dramatic, but it's not connected to my drama. Right. It's full of people, but they're not real people. Got situations going on, but they're not like my situations. There's a lot going on, but it doesn't necessarily connect to me. It doesn't lead me because like a reality TV show, it just seems like something that's interesting and gritty, but it's not like my everyday gritty or dramatic. So it's sometimes there can be a disconnect. As we go through this series on Jesus's people, there is something that I'd like you to see today, right? Not only is every passage in this Bible connected to Jesus, and as a church we believe that, 
that every passage, every genre of literature, every chapter, every story is connected to God's passion for mankind apexing in the life and the passion of Jesus Christ. So from Genesis all the way on to Revelation, you see God peeling back more and more of who he is, showing us more and more of how in-depth his passion is for us, culminating in the apex moment of Christ exercising his passion for you and for me. We don't believe that it's just a book of a bunch of good stories strung together like pearls on a, on a string, connected but not really. We believe that it is all connected to Jesus. It all starts with him. It ends with him. But not only do we believe that, we believe it connects to you. That the real world in this, it's, it's the real world for us. The drama in this is connected to the drama in you. Without this, without understanding that, you'll never be led by this word. Because it's just another story with different people where everyone's a hero and no one is me, right? Drama, interesting, gritty, sure. But it's not my living room on Tuesday night. It's not in my workplace on Friday morning. It's just different, right? So we're going to pick up where the story of Acts left off two weeks ago when Chris left us. Chris basically told us about Stephen's martyrdom, right? So now the hammer of persecution is dropping on the church. Stephen is murdered. People scatter. It's a pretty crazy scene. And we're going to pick up right where that left off in Acts 4, or forgive me, chapter 8, verse 4, right? This is the word of the Lord to us. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Now when it says went down, that's an elevation. It's actually north. They went north. And proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what is being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was, I love this little sentence, so there was much joy in the city. Okay, pause. This is the same Philip that we read about just a couple chapters ago that was set in with Stephen. They were part of the seven that were full of spirit and full of truth that were laid in to serve the church well. Same guy, right? Same guy. And now what happens? Philip, he actually watches his friend get murdered. Think about that. Watches this like the rest of the church. And then they scatter. They leave. Philip ends up in probably the one place that most people wouldn't go looking for a Jew, and that was in the heart of Samaria. That's where he finds himself. So this is the beginning of the church's expansion and explosion beyond Jerusalem. Up until this point, the first seven chapters, I guess, of the book of Acts, it's all been confined within the city limits of Jerusalem. It's all been there. Now Jesus said this is going to spread, not just Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Some scholars say this is at year three. Some say it's at month five. I've heard different things. It doesn't matter. All we need to know is that it hasn't moved yet. It's not been missional to other peoples yet, just Jerusalem. But now it is. Now it's persecuting, and now it's spreading. Now, this is the deal. This is what's interesting in the whole thing. How does it spread? Does it spread because they heard a good sermon and they got convicted? No, it spread because a terrorist by the name of Saul came in and started jackhammering on the church killing people, murdering people. I think we could be taught here, even before we move on. You know, if you catch yourself in a place where you are being scattered, 
If you catch yourself in a place where you are being persecuted and your plan A is no longer plan A or B or C or D, ask yourself, ask yourself, before you give in to being a victim, ask yourself, is God possibly placing me at a specific time for a specific reason? Am I here for a grander purpose? Is God really in control? I think that's going to be a big point we're going to unpack today because one thing I love about this passage, one thing I love about this passage is you just cannot extinguish the gospel. You have people trying as hard as they can, and what is the result? Other cities, they have much joy, this says. The gospel spreads. You have unclean spirits flooding out of people to show what? Well, they're born again. Now you have a real spirit that's coming in, not unclean ones, but the cleanest of all spirits being put into a people that will never be cast out. You see broken bodies that need to be healed, that they're lame. They're being fixed. Why? To show the fact that there is an ultimate healer in town that actually put his own life, his whole body on a cross to be broken so that our bodies ultimately will never know brokenness again. All of this points to the gospel. So two things we're going to put up on the screen, two things we've already learned about Jesus that we could say we see him more clearly. One is that out of pain, confusion, and broken plans, Jesus will bring joy. Mission comes out of this. Mission came out of pain. Mission comes out of confusion. Mission comes out of broken plans. And we also see that Jesus carries joy to broken cities. Already in a little small piece of text, this is just two ways that we see Jesus more clearly. Let's go on and look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, The man is, or this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Let's pause right there for a minute. Because this magic, think think less David Blaine. Don't think fishing line and camera angles and eyeliner and out on the streets of some cool city amazing people that's not this is sorcery right this is the bottom of the pagan pile he is communing and speaking with demonic spirits and enough is happening to where people are seeing on and watching something supernatural people are being amazed that's what's going on here that's how wicked this guy is right but then he becomes a christian he becomes a christian which is really cool What does it show us? One more thing we see about Jesus real clearly in this passage. Jesus loves to reach the totally wicked. Jesus loves to reach the totally wicked. And it shouldn't be news to us because he came to earth to do that very thing. You might say, but I'm not a sorcerer. But we all have our thing. We are all totally wicked. He reaches a guy, changes a guy. It should be encouraging to you. It should be encouraging. We're going to move on. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. 
but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Okay, Now, this is what's going on. Not complicated, right? The apostles, as well as the church, started to hear about what was going on. They heard about this just explosion of the gospel, but it would have been shocking to them because of where it was happening. If we were there, we would stop somebody as they were giving us the news of what God was doing in Samaria, and we would say, wait, 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 wait. I believe that God can do that, but cities mixed up. That couldn't have been Samaria. It's not Samaria. And even though you might be excited about it, you'd be hesitant, right? And we're, we're the same way. So what did they do? They sent people down to verify it. We would do that as well. Remember, remember, the Jews and the Samaritans back then are not too different from the Jews and the Palestinians today. They'd rather throw rocks at each other than sit across the table from each other. Deep-seated generational hatred, pain, offense, confusion, disagreement, blood. That's what's going on. Deep-seated racism, deep-seated hate. It would be like if we got great news that ISIS was laying down its arms. They're putting down their guns. They're, they're canceling all of their plans. They're submitting and giving all of their arms in to the UN. We would hear about that. And if they said, we're doing it because Jesus is now our hero and Jesus is now our king, all of us in this room would be excited. We would also be a little hesitant. We would want it what? Verified. We would want to make sure So what would we do? We would look for verification. That's all that's going on here. They're sending people down there to make sure that this is what's going on. Now, once they did, Peter and John, they go down and they check it out, and what do they say? These these guys are really Christians. God has really done something here. So what do they do? They lay hands on people, and they pray that God would send his Holy Spirit to do there what he had done not too long earlier before at Pentecost. In fact, this is called by many scholars the Samaritan Pentecost. And we're going to see a Gentilian one come up not too long from now. This was to seal the deal and show God's power to build his church, not just in Jerusalem, but across barriers. You see, right now, this is why this is important for you to know. Right now, this would have been very, very easy to see two churches pop up that maintain that rift. You would have a Samaritan church. They are already worshiping at their own temple. You'd have Jerusalem church come up. You'd have two different churches that maintain that blood feud. And God says, no. One spirit, one baptism, one set of good news, one Jesus, one church. He irons two churches into one. I'm excited for that. This is good news for us because it teaches us yet another thing about Jesus. So as we keep stacking facts about Jesus in this passage, this one is that Jesus loves to glue enemies together into friends. Can we not see that very clearly? Jesus loves to glue enemies into friends. And again, we shouldn't be shocked by that because what has he done for us? We we were saved when we were yet sinners, sorcerers, rebels, addicts, fiends, vandals, throwing rocks at him, not wanting to sit across the table from God. He rescues us and grafts us into his family, not just his friends, but his family. This is good news for us. Let's go ahead and move forward in verse 18. Got to move on. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, 
may your, sil- may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. It's always awkward hearing people get chewed out, isn't it? <laughs> I'm even awkward reading this. It's not even happening in front of me. Verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said comes to me. Now when they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Okay, pause again. Pause right here. Simon is obviously wanting to purchase with money this amazing feat that he is seeing, right? And again, it's not too different from us because here's a news flash that none of you would disagree. We would do the same thing. It's pretty cool what's going on. Think about it. You see Peter and John walking around, laying hands on somebody, praying for the Holy Spirit, and then power comes to that person. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? I want to be a part of that. I'll do whatever it takes. You see, we're not too different from Simon. We're not too different. There's a piece of me that wants to read this, and I definitely thought this in the past several years, looking at it and going, Simon, you're such a clown, man. Just chill out. Just be a part of this. Why do you have to be all messing it up with your weirdness? Just stop being weird. And then I have to remind myself, wait a minute. (laughs) I'd do the same thing. In fact, if I was standing there, I would be listening to see how much Simon was willing to pay, and then I'd try to one-up it so I can get a piece of it too. He'll give you that much? I'll one-up. I'll give you a little bit more. How many of us in here don't inconvenience ourselves and pay deep costs in order to look better before others and have power? We do it every day. We do it every day. We are Simon. Listen, before this is a good lesson for us when we read the Bible. Before we indict the Simons and the Ananiases and the Sapphiras of this text, let us at least relate to them first. Because when I look at this, I am him. Right? Amen? Let's look at verse 26. We're moving on. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. That's key. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, which was written about 700 years earlier than this. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and to sit with him. Okay, what I love about this passage is that you've got a guy who's relating to someone totally unlike him. These are two very, very different men. This guy was black, most likely. I mean, most likely, like 99% chance he was black. He was wealthy, right? You've probably heard growing up that all of a sudden Philip is this distance runner and he was having to run alongside a chariot. Some of you have heard that, and so it was like a miracle that he could preach and do that. Most likely that wasn't the case. Think more covered wagon and less Ben-Hur on this, right? So it's kind of going along at a bumpy, more of a pedestrian rate where they could just kind of walk alongside and talk and relate to him. But he was rich. He was wealthy. His culture was different. 
His language was different. He was a eunuch. That's different, right? He wasn't even a believer. What God shows us in this is that he loves for his missionaries to cross boundaries. We learn that about Jesus. That's how we see Jesus more clearly in this, because don't we already know that about Jesus? I mean, there's a difference between these guys, but there's a bigger difference between God and us. Jesus left a perfect community where he was like and similar to God the Father and God the Spirit. He enters humanity, and he crosses a bigger boundary. He comes to a people that are not like him, that are broken, scabbed over with sin, and he lives among us. It's beautiful. Jesus does it for us. We see it done here. It is meant to lead us. But now here's the question I ask when I read this. Maybe some of you picked it up just now. If this eunuch is not a believer, why did he go to Jerusalem to worship? It's an odd thing. What's going on there, right? Listen, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, this is you. You're a eunuch. You, too, have inconvenienced yourself. You've traveled a little bit. You walked into a place where you don't know everybody or you're still trying to get used to this whole thing. Maybe, maybe you're not even sure if you're a believer or not. Maybe like 70% of the time you're pretty sure you're not, but 30% of the time you're pretty sure you are and you just don't know. This is you coming here. And here you find yourself today part of a people of God. And we are glad to have you here. Are you skeptical? Welcome. Are you hesitant? Welcome. We're honored to have you here. And just like Philip, we would love to guide you in what the Bible says to show you Jesus more clearly. That's all that's going on right here. You know, there is a, a very helpful illustration, right, that I've used in my own life. I've used it with some of you. I might have even set it up here. I'd, there's no way I haven't said it at least once from the pulpit. Now, the thing is, is the illustration is based off a, a statistic that is total garbage, right? There's no way the statistic is real or useful, but the illustration behind it has really done a lot of work for me. And it is this, right? That every Christian, your average Christian, has had at least 14 contacts with a Christian person or group of people before they themselves became a Christian. 14. That's so stupid. How would you even know that? How would you even come about getting a number like that? How would they get 14, right? There's no way that statistic is good. I've tried to verify it. I've looked it up for years. I could never find it, right? Which means someone deleted it at some point because they knew it was garbage themselves, right? But this is the thing. There is a number, is there not? There's a number. We all have numbers. Some of you are 3,008. That's how many contacts you had. Some of you is two. Saul's about to fall off his pony. That's like one. He like just skips the line, you know? One big contact with Jesus himself, and bam, he's a Christian. But there is a number. I think what this number stands for in my mind is I think it's just God softening our hearts to get used to the idea and then fall in love with who he is. Step one, you hate God. And then you have contact with somebody, and that hate gives way. Instead of it being, I hate God, you become just indifferent. I don't even care about God loving me. The indifference over time, it gives way to skepticism. I don't, I don't know that I hate. I don't know that I don't care. I just, I just doubt that God really exists. And then that skepticism gives way to curiosity. I wonder. And curiosity gives way to hesitation. 
Maybe it's true, but I'm not sure. Hesitation gives way to agreement. I think this might be true. Agreement gives way to conviction. I will die for this hero who has died for me. And what you see is you see a gradual softening of the heart. Now, some of you, it was very fast. Some of you, it was quite slower. I remembered the contacts in my life. I remember seeing a coach do this thing. I remember seeing some neighbors do a thing. I remember reading a book. I remember seeing a roommate in college do some things. I remember having these contacts, and I don't know what the number was, but I did have a gradual softening of my heart. This eunuch was number 13 for him. He's right there. He's ripe. Right? Some of you today might be 13. Today could be a very good day for you. Very good day. This is great. What I want you to see, what I love about this passage, what I want you to see is there's great architecture, brilliant engineering to your story. Your story. Not mistakes that you bumped into the people that you bumped into. Not mistakes that you saw the things that you saw. Not happenstance that your heart started to be softened more and more. There was great investment in intentionality by God himself. You know what's cool about this passage? What I love about this passage, I know I love a lot. What I love about this passage is that God switches scenery for us really fast in one verse. It goes from the thousands becoming Christians in Samaria to one person. And God doesn't spend any less energy reaching that eunuch than he does an entire city. What we see and how we see Jesus more clearly in this passage is Jesus does not just carry joy to broken cities. He carries joy to broken individuals, broken people. Can you imagine an angel coming to, to Philip and talking to him? I, I know what my heart would say. I would be like, well, listen, God, I'll do whatever because you're God and I'm not, and I get that. So eventually the answer is going to be, yes, I'll do this. But can we just be honest? I mean, you're seeing this, right? There's like thousands of people here becoming Christians. I mean, we've got to build a church. We've got elders to set in. We've got widows to take care of. We've got to get a website up. We've got stuff to do. I've been integral in this so far. I might be one of the leaders, and you're asking me to leave? I mean, I will, but I mean, you see this, right? Okay, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Where do you want me to go? Wait, the desert? To Gaza? You know that's over 100 miles. There's like no one else. There's like no JV or anyone you can send out to do that. Why would you do that? What does God show us? Because he loves one person. It's the love of God. One person. He loves individuals. And many of you, you have a very difficult time seeing this. God, always the God of the many and never the God of me. Always the one who loves the populace, but never the one who loves me. Always the one who's excited about the big church, but not, not me. I hope you see God's heart for you. You need to hear that there was great investment in your story. Your story's not accidental. It's definitely not forgettable. Right? Of course you're a part of something bigger, right? But all of us who are in Christ had a eunuch moment on a chariot where God was after you. After you. Great intention behind the people that you had talked to, the things that you had read, the things that you had seen all of it a part of God's beautiful architecture and brilliant engineering to rescue you. It's how good he is. It's how good he is to us. Another question I have. Why on earth would God take this one guy and move him over 100 miles to the desert? Why couldn't he find somebody else? 
Why didn't he just send an angel? Let's pretend there was no one else. Why didn't he just send an angel? He's done that in the past. Read the Old Testament. He's always sending out angels to do that thing, to preach good news of God's will towards mankind. He did it then. Actually, he does it today. He does it today, right? Some of you have heard the stories of underground Muslim church planters. I talked to a couple guys who sponsor some in the Mideast, and this is their story. I got out of a shower once, and Jesus is sitting there, preaches the gospel to me, gets saved, my my whole family gets saved, and we started planting churches. (laughs) Christian. That happens. The nation is shut off to all kinds of gospel intrusion. Jesus is like, well, whatever, I'll figure it out. I'll just go myself. And so he sends angels. Why didn't he do that here? He does it today. You know, I had this friend in college. I was thinking about this guy this morning. I had this friend in college that we took all the same classes, sat right next to each other. He was a few years older than me, but he knew me before I loved Jesus. So he saw me get saved, right? And so I start really working on him. He was a smart aleck, man. Always had an excuse. Always had something real funny to say. Always, I could tell looking down his nose on me a little bit now. I mean, our, our relationship had changed a little bit. But he was still a cool guy. I was always working on him, working on him, working on him. And I pretty much started to give up. Then the very last class I ever took with him, like our second senior year, I had like two or three senior years, my, my second senior year, I, I walk into class right after summer break, he's sitting on the front row, I go up, I sit down next to him, and I'm like, hey bro, high-fiving, how was your summer, I said, and he goes, forget about the summer, listen, I got saved, Jesus showed up to me in a dream, in a dream, I woke up in sweats, I got on my face and I begged God to rescue me. The next morning, I took my family to church. It wasn't even Sunday. I didn't even care. We're talking to a pastor. Now my whole family loves Jesus. And man, I just wanted to let you know, Luke. Now here's what's going on in my heart as I hear this story. Part of me, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Part of me thought, is that valid? Is that like legit? I mean, if it happens in a dream, what are the rules on that? There's got to be some rule on that, you know? I don't know about it. I was like a half a year old in the Lord myself, right? And then there was a piece of me that thought, how come I'm not getting any credit for this, man? You ain't thank me. I'm the one that's preaching the gospel to you all the time. I don't get any commission or a backslap or nothing. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Well, Luke, is that legit? I don't know. He's leading his family in church today. You tell me. He does it today. Why didn't he do it here? Why send just a normal guy? This guy wasn't a seminary grad. Just a bivocational, hardworking guy on the run, not even in his hometown, under skepticism and speculation everywhere he goes, under the hand of persecution, doesn't even know he's going to sleep that night. Why send this guy? Because what we learn about Jesus more and more in this text is, is that Jesus uses his people for his work. He uses his people for his work. Now, I know Jesus does all the work. I I get that. In fact, whenever we say someone led me to the Lord or I led someone to the Lord, we all honestly know Jesus leads people to himself. That's God's spirit leading people to the cross. But he uses us and our voices and our obedience to paint the picture and display it before people. He does that. He uses his people. I love this. Another thing I love about this passage is that it shows us a picture of a missionary being obedient by being nudged along by the Holy Spirit, right? Here's another thing we struggle with. As a young Christian especially, I had a very difficult time knowing 
is that just me talking inside, or is that the Holy Ghost telling me to do something? I wouldn't be able to distinguish it between my own desires, my own flesh, my own fears, my own wants, and so it would kind of paralyze me. God, is that you? Some of you have said that. God, is that you? I don't know. You know, there is something real to understanding the nudging and the very quiet voice of the Holy Spirit in our life. Sometimes the Holy Spirit speaks to us internally. So think of like a conviction, a passionate desire, a burden, a long-standing wish. Sometimes that's just the Holy Spirit internally guiding you towards one thing and not the other, right? Well, why displaced people groups and not single moms? I don't know. It's just I've always had like a bleeding heart for this. I've always had a, that's the Holy Spirit a lot of times, friends. It's not just the way you grew up. God himself leads us internally. Sometimes it's not internal. Sometimes it's external. Dreams, visions, words. I don't have, I've never heard a word spoken to me audibly, and I've never had a vision like what we're going to see Peter have in a little bit. But I have had dreams. I've had three I've counted in the last probably 10 years. All of them right before massive decisions where I had no clue what I was supposed to do. God speaks to me in a dream. I wake up. I write it down. I know that I know that I know that it's bookmarked. God says that was not a dream. I give it to the pastors the next week or the next morning and say, guys, I'm submitting this to you. Because this is the deal. Those are less frequent. And when they do happen, they need to stand against what the word is already saying. And you should submit them to leaders in your life too. Because 1 John 4, he says that not every spirit is from the Lord. Not every spirit is from the Lord. Not every crazy dream you get is the Holy Spirit talking to you. It's just not. So we have things to hold us accountable. But that's what's going on here. Philip, twice. He had an external thing. Angels say, go. He had, an, he had another external one. Um, an angel said, you need to, or the, the Lord speaking to him, saying, you need to go talk to this eunuch. We get to see it all happen right before us. So I'm going to jump ahead to verse 32. We need to move on. We're jumping on to the Bible study they're about to go to. Verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. This is all from Isaiah, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Some call it the fourth gospel because it so powerfully points to the act of Jesus and the passion of God for mankind. That's what he's reading right now. Verse 33, In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. Listen, this is what I call a softball. (laughs) Missionally, as an evangelist or a pastor, if you're bringing the gospel to people, if you're telling them about Jesus, you will get weird passages thrown at you or very scary life situations or they'll come with questions that their their professor in college told them to ask the first Christian to come along. You will get what I call curveballs and sinkers and 107 mile per hour fastballs, and you won't even see it coming, you won't know how to react, you won't know how to swing the bat. But every once in a while, you get an underhanded softball, painted red, covered in nerf. See it coming a mile away, and you connect. This is a nerf. This is a softball. This is such an easy passage. 
theologically to connect to Jesus. No problem. Anyone in this room could say, oh, no, 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 no. Isaiah wasn't saying this about himself. Saying this about Jesus. I got some good news for you, brother. Any of us in here could have done that. I think what is also noteworthy in this passage is we see what I like to call chariot evangelism or what I've called in the past chariot evangelism. There is a lot of talk going on. And listen, I'm a believer. I'm not going to boo-hoo it up here in what's called relational evangelism where you just get to know somebody a year, two years, six months, where you get to know the inner workings of what makes them tick. And you've earned a trust. You've earned an ability to speak the truth into their life. And they trust you because you've been doing life with them. There's been about a billion books written on this, relational evangelism. But every time I read the Bible, I come to passages like this. There's not much relational going on. Philip just skips the 38 Starbucks meetings and the two Christmas parties. and the, all, He skips all of that and says, what are you reading? You, you want to know what that's about? Here it is. Lays it down, baptizes him in a puddle, zips on to another place. I mean, when you read this, doesn't it feel like it was done in like an hour? It was done quickly. Done quickly. So Luke, what do we do? Chariot evangelism or relational evangelism? The answer is yes. There's this weird battle inside the Christian church over which is better. That's so stupid. They're both better. There, they're both better. You should pray about which one you should do. Pray in the morning, pray whenever. Just ask God, God, show me chariot moments and show me relational moments. Show me the people that just need to be known in order to hear the gospel clearly. And show me the people where you just want me to ambush in, lay it down, and pray. Now listen, the majority of the people, and I love a relational evangelism, the majority of the people I have led to the cross to see Jesus more clearly have happened in chariot moments. I'm not saying it's better. I'm saying don't count it out. This is a very real thing when we are obedient. Pray for the Holy Spirit to nudge you and show you. Because if he's nudging you and he's aiming you at that person, guess what that means? It means that moment is ripe. Luke, does that mean they're going to get saved? Nope. It means that moment is ripe for you to sow, for you to say. Verse 36, let's move on. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see... Here is water. I can't imagine there being a whole lot of water back then, so it's probably a, a little bit of water. See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all of the towns until he came to Caesarea. What I love about this passage is that we see salvation produce immediate action. I just need to get baptized. So what do I need to do? So this is true. I need to act. What do I need to do? Right? I guess I need to break up with my girlfriend. I guess I need to move out. I need to quit abusing alcohol. I need to quit abusing my wallet, my calendar, my friends. I need to do stuff. What do I need to do? Why? Are we trying to impress God? No, but the good news propels us into obedience. It's what we see in the Bible. He gives us a new heart, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh to where we desire to do his commands. We want to. That's what's happening right here. It's important. It's important. Another thing I love about this passage is that Philip was transported quickly. Do with that what you will. Okay? I've heard scholars be very uncomfortable with this verse. 
And they say things like, he walked quickly. (laughs) He left the water and moved on to the next town quickly. He did not tarry. He did not waste time. I've heard others say this is a little bit more Star Trek, which is kind of the camp I'm in. I think he was just beamed. I think he just disappeared and he showed up. Because I'm thinking, why not? And this is where the, the reading it kind of leads us in that direction. This is what's important for you to know, though. Whatever you believe about that. Is that Jesus relocates us according to his purposes. His purposes. Have you noticed a pattern about Philip's life so far? Just in a little bit of a chapter. He's not getting to finish very much, is he? He's in Jerusalem, getting things started. Moves on to Samaria. Picks another fight. Gets some things started. Moved on to Gazan Desert. Starts a little bit of a fight. Translocated to Azota. Starts a little bit. Moves on to the next town, the next town, the next town. All the way up the coast to Caesarea. He's starting a lot. He's not getting to see a lot mature, though. He's picking a lot of fights. He's not getting to finish. He's sowing a lot of seeds. Some of you know what this feels like. Have you sowed a bunch of seed to not see the maturity of what's going on? Sowing seed feels a lot like failure, doesn't it? It feels like failure because we don't really get to see what's going on. We just sow it. Or we're watering. But when we don't see God get the growth and see maturity come out of that, it can feel a lot like we're just failing. Let this be an encouragement to you. So many eunuchs out there, folks. So many Samaritans. So many magicians and sorcerers. You will be called to sow seeds. And you won't even know until one day we're collected before one table, taking one communion, and you will see that person. And you were number six on their scale of one to 14. You were number one. You were number two, and God used you. You were part of their brilliant plan. I love this. You might find yourself starting a lot. I hope you've seen in this. This is living as Jesus' people. Their real world is our real world. Their drama is our drama. I mean, I read this, and I think, you know, our real world is Jesus' people. We're extending a gospel to others around us. We're spreading Jesus' fame. But guess when we're doing that? When we have chronic migraines. When we're not getting any sleep. When the kids, yet again, are going through another phase in life. When the brakes are squealing and we can't afford to replace them. When our boss is squealing and we can't find another job. Whenever things are not working out and your plan A is long gone, plan B, long gone. You're on plan K and you're pretty sure that's tanking too. That is when, that is when joy comes to cities. That is when we spread God's message. That is when we are vocal. That is when we are obedient. Philip's real world is our real world. We're directly connected to this. Unsettled. None of our plans working. Thinking you're going to live in Jerusalem and you end up in Samaria. Thinking you're going to end up in Samaria then and then you're in the desert. That's what it feels like for a lot of us, right? Our real world is Jesus' people just like his. It shows us relating to people we have nothing in common with. Nothing. How many eunuchs are in your life right now where you look across the table and you're like, I have nothing in common with you, brother, and I'm not seminary trained, right? As Jesus' people, we live lives where we're called to relate. Some are long-standing relationships and some are short. And like Philip, we'll see some die. We will see some pass away. He lost his friend Stephen. I've seen people that I've served with out on the mission field. They're dead now. 
It's all part of the picture. This happens. Our real world, just like their real world back then, our real world today as Jesus' people shows us making hard executive decisions based on nothing more than a nudge from the Holy Spirit. Their drama is our drama. We're not disconnected from this book. It is a direct line to us. Let it lead you. Let this lead you. Here's the lie. I'm about to be done. Here's the lie we tell in our minds. This is what I've been building for this whole time. The lie is this. Luke, I can't be on mission and I can't bring joy to others because my situation stinks. If my situation changed, then I could be obedient, then I could be joyful, then I could be missional. But that day is not today. Today, Luke, today I feel too dirty, too hectic, too not put together, too much out of time, too distracted, too lonely, too scattered, too scared, too fearful, too many headaches, too much going on, too much marital discord. I cannot do this. That's a thing that we do, Luke, whenever we're in times of peace. That's not a time of war thing. And right now I'm in a war. That's why I love this passage, this Bible study that they had, this little Ethiopian Bible study they had. Look at this. Let's go back to what Isaiah says. This is 700 years before this happened. Like a sheep, God tells Isaiah, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. I don't think this is a random passage. This is not a random passage. Right? Yes, it's a softball theologically. It was going to be difficult for him emotionally. I can see him really struggling to dissect and show Jesus in this. I think I would if I was in his shoes. Philip's friend, Stephen, he was led to the slaughter like a lamb. Philip saw it. He's probably scared it was going to happen to him any day. Justice was denied his buddy. Justice was being denied him. He was being scattered. He wasn't around friends and family. He's cities away. He's reading this and is probably tempted, as you and I would be, to say, why is this happening? God, this isn't a time for mission. This is a time for licking wounds. This is a time for patching up. It's not a time for being offensive. It's a time to be on my heels. It's not a time to be on my toes. But... He was one of Jesus' people, just like us. His drama, just like our drama. And I know he said inside of himself, probably said out loud, the same thing I have to tell myself, the same thing I'm trying to lead you to say, which is my situation does not determine my obedience and my situation does not determine my joy. You, when, when we bump into people, and some of you know, all of you should know this, whenever you bump into people that are misbehaving, they're not obeying, don't they often blame it on their circumstance and their situation? Right? Luke, I would be tithing. I would be giving to the church. I would be, but, but my situation. I would not be shacking up, but my situation. Well, I get it. I get it. It's wrong to get drunk. It's wrong to smoke, smoke just a ton of pot. I get that. But look at my situation. I know I'm doing fill in the blank, but look at my situation. So our situation drives our behavior. Right? Instead of the God of all situations. Not only that, but even our joy. How do you expect me to be joyful? Do you not see the war I'm in, the situation that I'm in? What you end up with is a Christian that says, everything is dictated by my situation. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. 
What I love about this Isaiah passage is this. Isaiah shows us that in the worst of all situations, take all the situations that have ever happened in human history, the very worst one ever, Jesus did out of joy, the joy set before him, and out of obedience to his Father. Never has Jesus Christ been as missional as he was in the worst of all situations. That's what we see in this. The worst of all situations. And he was deeply passionate, deeply obedient, joyful. He's showing us. This is the height of mission. His life was taken from the earth, but his life was not taken from him. His life was wiped off the earth, but it wasn't taken away from him. How do we know that? Because God is in control. The tomb was empty. That's how we know. God never lost control, right? God is in control. What does that mean for you and me? If God is in control of the worst situation ever, right, then what about your issue and your situation? We all have Saul's persecuting us, whether it's a thing or a time or a place or, or a sickness or something. Something is bullying us around. Everyone in here is being bullied by something, a situation that we point out and say, that's why I'm not being obedient. That's why I'm not being joyful. That's why I'm not being missional. That's why I'm not being evangelistic. That's why I'm not loving my neighbor. It's because of my situation. God is in control, though. He shows us. Saul's don't intimidate him. Bloody crosses don't either. Right? Look at your life. Where are you? What boulder is just too, too big to lift? What is it for you? Where is God not in control? Right? Look at the tomb. Look how empty it is. You know, these things that tell you that you can't be a servant of God, these things that tell you that you can't be joyful and can't be obedient, they're lying. They're just liars. It's a lie. Show them the empty tomb. Ask yourself, what people are around you? Who are the Sumerians around you? Those who are very different those who you might have had a racial discord with in the past or pain or hurt? Who are the magicians around you? The Simons? Who are the eunuchs around you? We've all got them. They're all around us. You know, we've been taking all these things that we're seeing clearly about Jesus in this text, but if you were to stick them all in a blender, you come up with this. Jesus uses broken situations and broken people to cross boundaries, to love other broken and wicked people, and this will change cities. That's what we end up with. Jesus uses broken situations and broken people to cross boundaries to love other broken and wicked people, and this changes cities. Jesus pops out of this passage.